All right, all right. I will. You just wait. You just wait. So it's a kid's service today. Yeah. Uh, good morning and Merry Christmas. I hope everybody is uh, getting in the groove of Christmas today. Um, you know, in my church, the church I grew up in, I grew up in the evangelical church tradition, and we always called the main service Big Church. This, so there was Big Church, and then there was Kids Church. You know what I mean? And I, I, I don't really know why we called it that, why we called it Big Church. I hope it's because there were, like, grown adults in the service and not because we thought it was more important uh, than what the kids were doing because... Uh, what the kids do every Sunday, either downstairs or with us for a period of time in worship, uh, is not more important than what we do in here, actually. Uh, it's age-specific, yes, uh, but they are still learning about the scriptures. They're still singing in worship to God. They're still learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What they're doing downstairs is not more important than what we're doing up here. In that grace community, we really see... Uh, what we do with the kids uh, every week is not simply babysitting. We don't want it to be babysitting. It's really, what it really is, is a part of a kind of sacred responsibility we have to raise our children well, to disciple their hearts in the way of Jesus so that they can learn at an early age what it means to live a flourishing life under the leadership of King Jesus. That's what we're, that's what we're driving at. Uh, that is a big part of why we invite our elementary students to be with us in worship on every every week. We do that intentionally, just in case you were wondering, because we want them to see and experience what it means to worship God uh, with the community, with the church itself. And we want them to learn from an early age what it looks like to encounter the, the Holy Spirit in worship. And uh, just FYI to the adults in the room, um, our kids' view of Jesus, our kids' view of Jesus will be shaped in large part by how they see us worship week in and week out on Sundays. It's just kind of a reality. Their vision of God, their vision of God, the picture in their minds of what God is like, will be largely determined by how they see the adults in their lives interact with God. Not just their parents, actually, all of us in a way. The way we worship Jesus is the way our kids will learn what it means to worship Jesus as king. Now, I'm not saying that when, you need, when we come into this place, uh, we need to be overly demonstrative in worship. If that's not your bag, that's okay. If you're a more introspective person, uh, that's totally fine, right? There is room for all different types of uh, expressions in worship to God, and we should all do that in, an, in as authentic a way as possible. But what I mean is that uh, when we come into this place, when we come into this place to worship God, uh, when we come into big church, as it were, it's important that we tune our hearts into God and that we, that we, make, that we make space in our hearts and in our minds for being tuned into God. You know, in, if there's a gap in our lives between the way we, the, the attention we pay in worship to God and the attention we want our children to pay in worship to God, then there is a little bit of work for us to do there, correct? Uh, that if there's a gap in our lives between what we want to see our kids doing and what we are actually doing, then there is, in some real sense, uh, a little bit of work to do. 
the truth of the matter is, and I could have just said this and then not given you this little talk, uh, it's practice what you preach, right? It's practice what you preach in all aspects of life, really. And as a preacher, that's a really scary thing to say because I say a lot of things every week. Uh, but it's something we need to investigate a little bit, isn't it? It's something we need to look inside our hearts about. Um, because the adults in this place, and this is true, the adults in this place are both actively and passively building the culture of this church. You're doing it. Whether you think you're doing it or not, you're actually doing it, right? And in 15 years, when our kids are out of the house, what they say about Jesus and the church will be shaped in large part, in large part, by what they, say, what they see and experience here, right? You see, it's a, what we do on a given Sunday is more than it is about, it's more than just you and me, right? It's more than just what we're doing as adults in this room. It has lasting implications, and uh, on any given Sunday, on any given Sunday, whether we feel great about being here or not, actually, right, the generations that will, are coming uh, behind us uh, are depending on us to look to God and to build a culture in this church that, is a, that will be attractive to them and can carry them through their life into adulthood. This is an important thing. And I, for one, I as the pastor but also as a, as a father of two children in this church, want the, want the faith that we express as a community to be vibrant, to be a lived-in faith that makes sense to our children. I want our kids to have a positive experience in this church so that, they, so that when they get out of this place and when they're kind of launched out of our homes, right, they can't help but find a community of Jesus followers that they can, that they can follow Jesus with on their own or with that group of people. You know, we get the privilege of building that type of church. It's a privilege. And we want our kids to be a part of it. And so this is a great opportunity and challenge. It really is. And on a, on, on a family service day like today, I just thought I would kind of help remind us all of that reality. The ball's in our court. Our kids are watching. They see everything. They see a lot more than you want them to see, actually, right? And so, uh, let that just be a reminder to us that as we, as we build the kingdom and as we build Grace Community Church, that we would build it into the type of place we, want our, we would want our kids uh, to see and experience God in. All right? All right. So, today's a family service, and I just wanted to remind us all of that truth. And because it's a family service, a Ashley made up some uh, baggies for the kids. Who's got ra kids? Raise your hand if you've got the... Are you checking things off, waiting for me to waiting for me to say things? Yes, you only got one left. Uh, well, pay attention, pay attention. Okay, you can put your hands down. <coughs> pay attention because I'm going to say a strange word. It's written into my message somewhere, and if you see it, you will complete your scavenger hunt. And do they get a prize? They get a prize. Oh my goodness! And you get a prize. Do I get a prize for saying the word? I get my presents. If I don't say the word, I don't get a present for Christmas? Okay. I don't... All right. I should stop talking to these kids because they're going to talk through this whole message. Uh, so today, so today, 
uh, we are finishing, uh, we're not necessarily finishing up because we still got Christmas Eve tomorrow night, but we're continuing uh, our series that we've, we began at the beginning of this, this season of Advent uh, called Foretold, which is all about what the prophets say about Jesus as they anticipate his coming. And today, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about humility, humility. You can see, we didn't have a reader today because we had our kids come up, but uh, you can see in your handout uh, our teaching text for today. And you, if you read through that, you'll realize that there, the, one of the primary themes in that text is humility. Now, in the context of our kind of Midwestern culture and values, humility, uh, we, we value, humi- we value humi- humility, don't we? Uh, very often it's a kind of false humility or self-deprecation that we expect people to have, uh, but we do, we do value it. In our hearts, we, th- we think we're better than other people still, right? In our hearts, we still think we're better than other people, but externally in our culture, uh, we are conditioned to deflect praise, right? You probably know what I'm talking about. So if someone comes up to you and compliments you about your clothing or your cooking or, or something you did for them, you're expected to say something like, oh, this old thing? I've had it for five years. It's not a problem, right? Uh, if, if someone comes up and tells you, Nick, thank you so much for shoveling my driveway after there were six inches of snow, you're supposed to say something like, oh, I was just doing my own driveway, and I got carried away, and so I did three more in the, you know, on the block, right? You're supposed to deflect. This is what a humble person does. If somebody comes up to you and says, this sherbet, it's delicious. Did you, make it, did you make it yourself? You're supposed to say, that's the word, by the way, sherbet. After last week's debacle, it shouldn't have, that shouldn't have been the word. But anyways, uh, uh, you're supposed to say, it's an old recipe. It's my mother's. I just follow it to the letter, right? You're supposed to always deflect praise in our Midwestern culture. We're afraid, almost, of truly receiving a compliment because we don't want to come off arrogant or full of ourselves, right? Because having a big ego, being prideful, is something that, for us, is culturally taboo. Uh, my mom used to tell me that one of her biggest pet peeves was arrogant young men. And so, and I have two younger brothers. And so one of her, one of her missions in life as a parent was to make sure she didn't have cocky boys, she would always say. I don't want to have cocky boys. You see, it's a Midwestern value, isn't it? And maybe because of that Midwestern value, when we read about the humble way that Jesus came into the world on Christmas, we like it. I think we kind of like it, don't we? We're not shocked by it, actually. Most Midwesterners would probably, in their hearts, say something like, it's good that Jesus didn't come and make a big show of things, right? He's the king of the universe at all, in all, but he just didn't need to make a big fuss about it. It's, it's kind of true. It's how most of us feel. We want even the greatest among us to be at least externally humble, don't we? Internally, we know, again, that each of us thinks that we're better than everyone else and that we have it all sorted out and that everyone else is a wreck and I, I know exactly how things should go, right? But externally, humility uh, is something we expect. But that external humility very rarely kind of sinks down to the place of our hearts, doesn't it? But at least uh, externally, we expect a kind of standard. Uh, we expect others to conform to a kind of standard. But I think it's the familiarity with this idea of humility and the humility of the Christmas story and the humble life that Christ actually led that um, 
causes us to lose a little bit of perspective on how radical it was that Jesus came into the world the way he did. You see, in the Roman world of Jesus' day, self-deprecation and humility were not, con- were not even considered good things. This sounds strange because if you look up any list of virtues, humility will be on the list of virtues, right? But in the Roman world, that was not the case at all. They didn't value, hum- they didn't value humility. It's hard for us to even get our mind around we think it's such an important virtue. The, in the place of humility, the, the Romans had a word. It was philotomia. It's a Greek word, surprisingly enough, which means the love of honor. This is what they were shooting for, the love of honor. It was not humility that they held as a virtue, but this idea of the love of honor. And for the, for the Greeks, the Greek word for humility actually means to be crushed or to, to be debased, and they did not want that. There's a Greek, uh, famous Greek philosopher, one of the big ones, his name is Aristotle, and he said that he, <coughs> excuse me, he said that honor and respect were the pleasantest things one could attain for oneself, right? This cultural value was, uh, was, the cultural value in the Greek world was not to be humble. It was to try to attain honor and to speak boastfully about yourself, to tell other people all of the cool stuff that you have done, to try to gain honor and respect. This is what they were shooting for in the Greek world. And this was considered a normal thing to do. It was not, it was not prideful. It was not boastful. It was expected, especially if you were a military leader, if you were a political leader, or if you were a religious leader. Probably the most famous example of this is a treatise written by, uh, the, the treatise is called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. And do you want to venture one guess as to who wrote uh, Achievements of the Divine Augustus? Augustus wrote it himself. And in this little document, Caesar Augustus speaks about himself in the first person, Right? And talks about all of the ways that he's done amazing things. There's actually 35, there's actually 35 statements, 35 things that he says that he did really, really well. And he actually had these, he actually had this, these 35 statements embossed on all kinds of bronze um, statues and things of that nature and sent out all over the Roman world. This is just a snippet of it. This is number nine of 35. He says this. The Senate decreed that vows be undertaken for my health by the councils and priests every fifth year. In fulfillment of these vows, they often celebrated games for my life. Several times the four highest colleges of priests, several times the councils. Also, both privately and as a city, all the citizens unanimously and continuously prayed at all times at the shrines for my health. <laughs> right? What, what in the world? If we had a... Well, never mind. Uh, could you imagine, could you imagine if every year what we, we uh, at, at Christmas time, people wrote letters like this and they sent them out uh, full of all of the achievements that someone had attained in the last year. We don't do that, right? No, we don't. But it was into, the, it was into this context where humility was looked down upon. You see that in that culture? And, and, uh, and it was into this context that Luke writes his gospel story, that Luke writes the story of Jesus' coming and his birth. But it was into the, uh, and it's no surprise that, pe- that when people saw this, they were a little scandalized because 
this king who Luke says was coming, this king who was going to be born, did not come in the way that you would expect a royal king to come. And he most certainly did not conduct himself, and the people around him did not conduct themselves in the ways in which you would expect someone to do so in the Roman world. You know, Jesus is born into these incredibly humble situations, into the lowliest of circumstances. Instead of a royal decree that went out over all of the earth that he was being born, Herod does issue a decree, but that decree is to seek his death. Instead of his birth being witnessed and attested to by royalty, the only audience were some lowly shepherds, those who were considered to be on the bottom rung of society. Jesus is born into humility in an honor-crazed culture of the first century. This must have seemed to them to be a ridiculous way for a king to be born. But not, uh, but not for the Hebrew prophets. Not for the Hebrew prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah and not for Jesus' own mother, not for Jesus' own mother as well. In our teaching text for today, you, you can read that, you can hear about the high tree that's being lowered and the, and the low tree that's being exalted. That, there, that in, the, in the scheme of the Old Testament, there becomes, there's this theme of the proud being lowered, the proud being brought down, and the humble being exalted in, in contradiction to the culture that was all around the Middle East at the time. You know, and Mary herself echoes this same theme. You know, after Mary receives word from the angel that she's about to uh, give birth to the Messiah, she goes to uh, her cousin's house, and, she, and after she has a conversation with her, she sings this little song in Luke 2, verses 51 through 52. She says this, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has battered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the ruler from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. But has lifted up the humble. Mary is saying her that here that this orientation of God's kingdom that we read about in the Old Testament and that the prophets were talking about, that this orientation is going to continue. It's not going to end. And that the Messiah, the anointed king, would not, take up, uh, would not take up a kind of proud or uh, glorious stance, but would rather be identified with the humble. And because of his humility would be kind of raised up, would be raised up. And that is the type of humility that characterizes the kingdom of God in the scriptures. And that was the type of kingdom that Jesus was coming to usher in at his birth. And this is exactly what Jesus does, isn't it? Jesus comes into the world humbly, but he also lives humbly and teaches us how to do that as well. His teachings on humility actually radical, radically change the world, right? Because we no longer live in a culture where, uh, where we seek honor and speak about how great we are in the first person, right? At least most of us. Humility became a virtue in the Western society because of the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus himself was never honored because he modeled this type of humility, didn't he? You see, by the standard of his culture, Jesus lived the entirety of his life in a humble way. And in order to point to us that his kingdom, the, 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 the rule that he was going to usher in was going to be completely different. 
It wasn't going to be like anything we had seen before. You know, Jesus' great message about the kingdom that he was going to be ushered in was given in the wilderness of Judea on the side of a mountain, far from the, far from the seats of power in his day. And in the first line, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, Jesus? What are you talking about? We all know that blessed are the rich and the powerful and the influential, right? We know this. Just look at them. Jesus made very clear that his kingdom would not belong to the proud and to the boastful, but rather his kingdom found its genesis, its, its center with those who were lowly, who were humble, who were poor, who were broken. It would not belong to the powerful. It would not belong to the political or social elites. It would belong to those who are humble. It would belong to those who are hurting. And Jesus continued to live his life this way, didn't he? He never stopped living his life this way. You know, Jesus would occasionally do miracles. If you read the Gospels, you pick up on this. And when he, after he would do one of these miracles, he did this funny thing sometimes. He would go to the person that was healed of whatever, and he would say, don't tell anybody about this, right? Please don't tell anybody about this, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to do, doesn't it? If I prayed for you, and you, like, were blind, and you received your sight, do you know what I would say? Call the news, right? <laughs> I wouldn't say, shh, just go home right? It's funny. Jesus lives his life this way. It's, it's, the, it's the very orientation of his life, and he embodies this humility for us to show us the way of humility. And that's, this humility continues all of the way until his death, where Jesus dies on the cross. And on the cross, we see the, the, most, uh, the most visceral example of Jesus's humility, if you remember, the Romans thought that the word humility meant crushed or debased. And at the cross, we see the most crushing, debasing, and humiliating punishment that one could ever endure. And yet, Jesus went to those ends and then died. But it's on, by virtue of his total and complete humility, humility and humiliation on the cross that the writers of the New Testament begin to say it's because of his willingness to go to this place that he was going to be raised, that he's going to be elevated, that he is going to be that branch from the tree that's brought high rather than low. You can read about this in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 9. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, in your relationships one another, have the same mindset as Christ. So that's important, right? But he says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." You see, Jesus came as a humble king to show us the way of humility. That's my only point today. We're going to get done quick because we have kids in service. 
But Jesus came as a humble king to show us the way of humility. Now, even in our pseudo-humble Midwestern culture, right, true humility is something that is quite radical. Humility of the heart is a rare thing, isn't it? That type of humility that truly puts the needs of another person before your own. That type of humility that does not strive for greatness and respect, but rather rests content with the knowledge that God is leading and guiding us in his plans. You see, there is a kind of self-lowering that comes with this type of humility, right? A kind of self-lowering. And Christ exemplifies this in the Christmas story. And he shows us that this uh, willingness to lower oneself, this willingness to put the needs of another before our own needs, is is actually the key to living a worthwhile and joy-filled life. Because... Working for our own ends, working for our own honor, working for our own glory is fun for a period of time. And to get praised for something you did and to have all of the shine on you is good at times. But ultimately, we'll come up hollow. We'll ultimately, after a period of time, feel shallow. You know, I hear a lot about kids in... uh, these days, and I have one who's in kindergarten, so he says this to me sometimes, that all the kids in, all the kids in kindergarten want to be famous, right? Have you ever heard this? Elliot said to me the other day, this, oh, my friend so-and-so, he's going to be so famous. And I thought to myself, that's not a good thing, right? That's not a good thing. We live in a culture where fame is becoming this more and more important thing. Actually, our culture is moving particularly because of social media, things like Instagram and Facebook and all of those things. Our culture is moving more towards the kind of Greco-Roman view of honor and, and, uh, and respect, right? That people are working towards this thing on Facebook. I want as many people to like me as possible, right? I want as many people to like that image as possible so that I can feel good about myself because it's all about me, right? Our culture is moving more towards that extent, David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times who was, uh, actually has this really cool, you can go look it up. At Yale University, he had this conversation with a, with a biblical scholar named uh, Miroslav Volf. And they were talking about how we attain joy in life, how we attain joy in life. And Brooks used this interesting cultural phrase where he talked about a culture of the big me, the big me. Noting that the majority of college students prioritize a desire for fame over their other desires. They, use, they are self-promoting and they're self-marketing. And they're all doing this as a, as a means to be quote-unquote entrepreneurs or a founder of a startup or something like that. But what they're actually cultivating is a sense of fame for themselves. They want to be famous. They want to have notoriety. They want honor and respect. They believe, along with Aristotle, that the most valuable thing, the most, the pleasantest thing in this life is cultivating honor and respect for oneself. And that's not true. It's not true. The truth is that a self-focused, fame-obsessed life and culture is not going to lead us to life and to joy. It's not. Seeking our own honor and glory will never end up making us feel good. It will, end us make, it will end up making us feel hollow. Because we were created for God. We were created by God. 
And until we are led to the place where we can embrace a type of community that allows us to acknowledge that and function in the way that we were created to function, we will never find joy. You see, humility is a prerequisite to find joy because one of the keys to finding joy in our life is acknowledging that I don't know what to do with myself. And to give ourselves to something higher or beyond ourselves, it's the only way to find joy in this life. And if it's always about the big me, if it's always about project self, if everything is this constant on and on and on attempt to cultivate more honor and respect, to get more followers, to uh, do more business, to uh, build a kingdom of my own, if that's what it is, it's never going to feel successful. It's never going to feel joyful. The key to a flourishing life in the economy of God's kingdom is humility. Because pursuing the way of Jesus requires humility. Taking, uh, taking the word of Jesus as authoritative requires humility. It requires us to look at the words of the scriptures and the words of Jesus on, say, the Sermon on the Mount and say, that's the way I need to live my life regardless of whether I want to or not. And if you make that statement, that requires no small amount of humility to be cultivated in our hearts. Because we can't pursue the way of Jesus without humility. We just can't. We can't, we can't love people well without, a, without voluntarily lowering ourselves, without a voluntary self-lowering. We can't truly serve and love one another. In order to acknowledge the authority of King Jesus... I have to have humility. I have to have humility. And the only way to follow Jesus is as a humble servant. As a humble servant. And that's why Jesus modeled it for us, isn't it? That's why he came in the way that he came. That's why he did the things that he did. In order to show us the way of humility. And so this Christmas season, this Christmas season, and today really, I just want to pray for us as we go. I just want to pray for us that we, we would learn more and more what it means to be a humble people. Not a people who are, uh, and maybe if you're in this place and you feel a little bit of tension here, that all of your work, all of your effort, all of your focus is always kind of on you, right? Maybe I will pray this morning that you would embrace a humility that would free you from that kind of pressure that would free you from that kind of pressure and let, let, allow you to walk into the world as a more free and humble person. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask, God, uh, that you would show us the way of humility exemplified in the person of Jesus. That you would help us to not work for our own ends, for our own self, for our own purposes, but rather, God, that we would see and know you Father, I pray for, the hum for those of us who are in this place who need it, for the humility to follow you, the, the humility to submit our wills, our desires, and our thoughts about what is good or fruitful to you. In those places where we are not humble, God, would you humble us so that, we so that there could be a willing self-lowering rather than uh, God doing the lowering for us. Jesus, 
would you make us a people who are exemplified by Christ-like humility as we go out into the world today? And would we find in our lives a true and lasting joy as we serve those around us, as we, as we work to the, towards the ends of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self? And would we find that at the center of the core of our being is a humble and receptive humility that allows us to see and know Jesus well? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you tomorrow night. All right? All right. <laughs>